0: So, uh, open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 John 5.13. 1 John 5.13. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my life, how I got CD, how I, uh, how I got PTSD, how I'm standing in front of you. Stand when you get to 1 John 5.13, if you would. I'll know you're there. If you can't stand, that's all right. We're in 1 John 5.13. What a great verse. This verse has so much meaning and so much in my life. The Bible says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know ye have eternal life, and ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Dear God, we love you. Oh, God, help us to know. We beg you, Lord, if there's one amongst us today who's not saved, or uh, they're just coming in under the radar, oh, God, save them. Lord, please allow them to become our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, we'd be quick to give you the honor and glory. You alone can save. You alone can help us today. We do come to you, Lord, and we pray if someone needs to hear something from your word, give us that today. Please, God, we need that. Do a work in our hearts and our minds. We love you, Lord. We're so thankful that we can testify of your greatness and the things you've done in our life. Oh, God, I stand in front of these people just a worm just somebody that you decided to save and care for and love. And I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that through through my wickedness, through those things I've lived in life, that if there's anything on my vocabulary, if there's anything in my language, if there's anything that does not bring you honor and glory, I beg, Lord, that you would strike that from me. God, would you open our hearts to your message, please? In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Thank you. Thank you. So I was born and raised. So you're getting the... uh, you're getting the whole testimony today. I was praying. I was telling pastor, I just don't. you never know what to preach for the first message. I think it's been three years uh, since I've given my testimony anywhere, and God just really put this on my heart. So if you listen to me speak, you'll know I'm from New England. Any, any other Yankees in here? Anybody know up, know up there? There's a few of us around. They don't let a lot of us in at any given time. You know, there's only so many that can come into an area. I've actually, and so you'll hear my language being a little bit messed up. It's it's got that New York, New England thing going on. I have been in language training in South Carolina, and I'm just not picking up things. I I, I know what all y'all stands for and y'all and stuff like that, but that's about all I got right there. We had one son born in Washington, D.C., and he sounds like he's from Pennsylvania or something. Because we moved all over the world in the Army. Then we have one son that was born uh, in Arkansas, and he definitely has got that whole southern accident thing going on. I'm a little bit jealous. He'll, he'll call me up and, how you all doing, Daddy? Is everything going on? I'm like, man. And, uh, but God is good. So I was born and raised in New England. Our family was a messed up family. Anyone else come from a messed up family? Yeah. Everybody could raise their hands, right? So my dad was a World War II veteran. He had uh, six foot two. He had uh, went and he joined the Army. The war was still going on. And someone told him if he joined, he'd miss uh, going to war and stuff like that because it was all coming to an end. So he joined. And uh, he went to Fort Dixon and stuff and did miss going into the actual shooting and things of that nature. He was on a ship on his way to Asia. Uh, when Hiroshima and those different bombings took place, and by the time he got there, I mean it was gutted. And he went to Japan, and he was uh, an MP uh, for General MacArthur, with a hundred and something people at all times guarded General MacArthur, and he did that for the next three years. And he got out. And my mom, she was raised up, and and she was born and raised as a Catholic lady, and went all through Catholic school, and. She ended up going to the convent, so somewhere this guy's out there. Mom went to the convent to become a nun, and she went to Yale University, and there's a convent right across from it, so they were grooming Mom for something special, letting her go to Yale and studying English. And uh, As she went to school there one night, after she had been there a few years, a priest came and knocked on Mom's door in the middle of the night. She opened the door. He had a little bit too much to drink and kind of wanted to have his way with Mom, and everybody in my family is an Amazon person, so think Mom, six feet tall, uh, strong basketball player, jogger. You know, she tore him up, man. She, she beat him like an unwanted stepchild. I mean, it was just, it was just ugly. Well, anyway, they kicked her out of the convent, which worked out all right for me. And uh, her priest came and picked her up. She broke his nose. A lot of good stories. So when I was a kid, you'd hear those stories from the nun. I was raised as a Catholic and in Catholic school. So anyway, our life went along. My dad. Uh, dropped me off at school i 'll never forget just like any other day. my dad sadly was abusive, was an alcoholic. He, he put on some really good shows, and uh, I remember he dropped me off at school and I think it was my first day of school in a new school and uh, I was in first grade and he he dropped me off and when he dropped me off, he drove away and i didn 't see him again for three or four years. He just deserted our family and left us and I mean we were like all over the place, you know we lost our home we all these different things were going on, uh, you know, all these things that were put in place, it was just, just kind of exploded, you know, and we really didn't know the Lord, and no one was really stepping up from where we were going to church or anything, We, we really didn't have a lot going on, and my mother met a pretty wonderful man a couple years later, they got married after a year, year and a half, he married a woman with five kids and three foster kids, and I don't know how he did that, who worked a couple jobs, and, uh, and God just blessed us. My stepfather turned out to be a pretty great guy. I'm sad it took all these years to realize that, but uh, I sure did love him growing up. And, and anyway, so life just showed up. I started school a year too early uh, because I was in kindergarten in one school system, and I moved to the other school system, and, and I'm old enough where kindergarten wasn't in the other school system so they just let me go to first grade, and they said, well, hold them back, and they forgot to hold me back, so I just kind of, so I got kind of young, and a lot of things went on over time, and that kind of turned out cool when you're the youngest person. The only thing I had going for me was always the giant in the class, you know, so they, it didn't really look like I was that much younger than everybody else, because I just, I mean, I think I was 6'3 by the time I hit ninth grade, so, and, uh, and I didn't grow much after that, maybe an inch or an inch and a half, but I, I remember, Going through school, I played football. I don't know if any of you guys ever played football. I love that. I love some of the sports. I love some of the things we do. Nobody in our town ever knocked on our door and invited us to church. Nobody. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses came out, and uh, uh, they were about the only ones who came out. And there's a story behind that that I'm not going to tell. But anyway, I I have a perfect way to get rid of Jehovah's Witnesses, but Debbie doesn't let me tell the story. But anyhow... uh, 17 years old came. I was hitchhiking home from football practice. Now, hitchhiking in 1978 was a mode of transportation. It was okay to hitchhike. People hitchhiked all the time. I lived seven miles from the high school, so I went to the high school, and uh, I was helping out with football practice and hanging out and things of that nature, and then I decided to hitchhike home, and even in September of 1978, there was this slushy rain coming down. It was cold, And I knew that I had a a seven-mile journey home, and only six or seven cars an hour went down this road during rush hours. I mean, it wasn't, uh, we we lived way out in the middle of nowhere in Connecticut, on eastern Connecticut. And uh, anyway, I was out there hitchhiking, and I saw this guy, he was coming up the road this way, and he turned around in a complete circle. He made a complete U-turn in the middle of the road, and I said to myself, that's either an army recruiter or a pervert. And it turned out to be both, praise God. But anyway, (laughs) he... uh, he rolled down his window in that old Ford Galaxy, and I remember he looked at me, and he said, are you going to hitchhike the rest of your life? And I said, I hope not. And I mean it, don't judge me in this next statement there. He said, if I give you a ride home, will you join the Army? And I said, sure. <laughs> you know, I, hey, folks, I was cold, man. So he, 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 he let me in the car, and I got in the car, and he went about 50 yards, and I mean, he just locked up those brakes. I mean, just, woo. Like that, I remember sliding forward, you know, no one wore seat belts back then, and I didn't even know where they were back then, you know, and, uh, but anyway, he locked up those brakes, and, I'm, and he looked at me, and he said, son, I'll never forget this, he said, I killed people in Vietnam, a lot of them. I kill people every day. He said, now, if I give you a ride home, will you join the Army? And I said, I will. I said, but you've got to get my mom to sign, and see, this was my, my wild card. I knew there was no way mom was going to let me take home an Army recruiter. And uh, join that day, you know, I, and we had been looking for my birth certificate and social security card, couldn't find it. You know, I was cleaning a bar next door for a living at five o'clock every morning. Uh, you want to talk about the sin of the world, man, that was, that was one of the ugliest jobs a man could ever have. But anyway, I said, if you can get my mom to sign, I'll join. He said, no problem. He takes off. We're home. I don't know, five, ten minutes later, we go pulling in the yard. I said, give me a minute. I got to let my mom know. Just about that time, I look out the door, and he's putting his Class A uniform on, and he's slapping on some Brute Fabergé. So after high karate in 1978, Brute Fabergé was the scent to go for. And uh, anyway, so I went and ran in the door. I said, Ma, we got company. There's an army recruiter with me. And she said, Okay. And I saw her come barreling around with a coffee. He came walking in. As she's going around the corner, he puts his hands up and stops her. Says, hold it right there. My mom stopped and looked at him. He said, I can see where your son gets all his good looks. She signed everything, man. She found the Social Security <laughs> card. She found the birth certificate. I mean, she found a package of stuff we'd been looking for for two years in less than five minutes. She was signing things. I don't even know, think she knew what she was signing. And... Uh, Man, I'll tell you we we got in a car now. I I was the ugliest girl you ever seen in your life, about six foot four and a half, 157 pounds, hair down to here, John London glasses. Uh, I, I didn't like wearing a ponytail because it looked too much like a girl, but I I was one ugly dude back then. And anyway, uh, the, the recruiter said, we're going. We're going up to the MEP station, they called it AFES back then. Army and Air Force Examination and Entrance Station. And they said, we're going to take you down there. They're going to give you an ASFAB test. And he said, the first thing you need to know is you need to do well on that ASFAB test because if you don't, you have to go into the Marine Corps. So, I mean, I really, I did the best I could. And so we got up there, and I took the ASFAB test. And then you go back to the hotel. You crash out. The next morning, the Army takes you in for a physical. They put a sticker on you that says, Carriger Army, with the last four of your Social Security number, and you're in the process. And the first thing you did back then is you took a drug and an alcohol test. And if you failed the drug and alcohol test, you had to go in the Navy. So you wanted to make sure you could pass that. <laughs> then the next thing you did is you had to lift 100 pounds over your head. And if you couldn't lift 100 pounds over your head, you had to go in the Air Force. And, uh, <laughs> but anyway, I, I went through the physical just like that. And I joined. And uh, I remember the military, it was so different. I told my mother I'm joining the military because I'm sick of people telling me what to do. Man, was I in for a surprise. And uh, I showed up at Fort Leonard at about 1 o'clock in the morning, and I learned what being told what to do was all about. And, uh, but basic training went on. Uh, there was a guy in my company. His name is, was Todd. was Anderson, I'm sorry, his last name was Anderson. And Anderson and I got to be best buddies. We went through basic training together. We went through combat engineer training together. We went through heavy equipment operating training together. And, And then we had guard duty one night. Now guard duty in the military is real. Guard duty in the military, you get three bullets in your M16, you lock and load, you get passwords, you you cover a certain area. I remember it was freezing cold this one night, and we had to blow up boots on and gloves out there at Fort Leonard Wood. It was below zero, and we were so cold. And uh, we had duty one night, and your duty would start about six in the afternoon, they'd pick you up at six in the morning. I remember we were out there one night, and I was with my friend Anderson, and and. uh, I remember that I heard my first sergeant, you're always looking for somebody checking on you. Usually your first sergeant, your top sergeant there in your company would come looking for you or something. And and, uh, I heard my name being screamed. And you know your first sergeant's voice. It's like knowing your mother's voice or your father's voice. You know their voice. You don't mistake it. And he was yelling, "Kerriger, get over here. And I went running down the road. And uh, I said, first sergeant, what's going on? My friend Anderson had taken his fingernails, and he had scraped his face, and he had skin hanging from his face. And he had this M16 in his hand, locked and loaded, spinning it around, telling people, I just want to feel something. I just want to feel something. I just want to feel something. And I remember looking at his face, and you could see the little skin tags hanging down and stuff. You could see the scratches in his face. And uh, I ran up there, so the first sergeant looked at me, and he says, "Kerriger." what kind of drugs is Anderson on? I said, First Sergeant, Anderson doesn't do drugs. We don't do drugs. Um, I I don't know what he's doing. And he said, that's when you find out the pecking order in the United States Army. There was a lieutenant laying on the ground hiding so he wouldn't get shot. There was a First Sergeant behind a tree. And he looked at me with all seriousness and said, Carragher, go get that weapon from Anderson. (laughs) And I was like, and give me yours just in case. And I remember I handed my weapon to the first sergeant and I bolted over there. As soon as Anderson swung in one direction, I hopped on top of him. And the first sergeant was able to get his weapon and tell the lieutenant it's okay to stand up. And, and uh, I got him down there and I was holding him down. And when I did, and they were calling, they had a two-way radio with them in their Jeep. And uh, they were calling the MPs and an ambulance. But I'll never forget looking at Anderson and somebody must have slipped some LSD or Somebody must have done something to this guy, slipped him some kind of drugs because he was hallucinating. And uh, I can remember them, the MPs coming to pick him up and not waiting for the ambulance, them throwing him in the back of an MP car and taking him over to the hospital. And I can remember that as clear and wondering, God, what is all this about? Here's my best buddy. He's never done anything wrong uh, from Kansas City, Missouri. All he did was join the Army and come out and he ripped his face off. But you see, that's a picture of a life without Christ, isn't it? just an emptiness inside of every one of us that only God can fill, only our Lord and Savior can fill. And, and Anderson never had his full. And, and uh, I remember I never saw the guy again, not once. They cleaned out his locker. I don't know what happened to him. I guarantee you he didn't take those things on his own. And, and, and time went by. And, and, and folks, I was one of those guys. We went from religion to religion. I was looking, I was searching. I had been born and raised in ritual I had been born and raised in tradition. I had been born and raised in doing some of the stupidest things you've ever done in your life that I can't even find to this day in the Bible. But that's how I was born and raised. And I had been born and raised through all that stuff. And uh, so I would go to these different things. And along the way, I got married. I was on recruiting duty, and I met Debbie. And, and uh, uh, Debbie and I got married real quickly. I'll tell you the marriage story later in the week how all that came together. And, and uh, if Debbie will let me or whatever. But... Uh, our lives were going good. Honestly, we didn't know the Lord. You know, we didn't drink. Uh, we didn't party. We, uh, if you saw us, we looked like Christians. We acted like Christians. But we didn't know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We just didn't happen. Now, on De- December 24th, 1986, I woke up. I was on recruiting duty in Danielson, Connecticut. I woke up in her house, and I said to Debbie, this is what I said to her. I looked over, and I said, honey, I said, I feel like I don't know God. I feel like there's something missing in my life. I feel like I pray, and I'm not praying to anybody. I feel like this is all just this ritualistic thing. I said, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if I'm supposed to get feedback. I'm not understanding what I'm reading. I don't know why we do all these different things. I, I, what, what should I do? And Debbie's advice to me immediately is, you need to speak with the man of God. And I mean, that morning, I literally got dressed, got ready, and we had a church down the road from us, a church that I had grown up in. And I went over and I knocked on the door of the rectory, which was like the priest's house in an office hooked to the church. And, and I banged on the door and a, a well-dressed lady come to the door, I would guess his secretary, whatever the case may be. And she said, may I help you? And I said, yeah, I said, it's very important uh, that I speak with the priest. I said, I feel like I don't know God. I feel like there's something missing in my life. I, I feel like this is all weird to me. I just don't know what to feel like, but I'm really scared. And she said, do you know what today is? I said, yes, ma'am. I'm the local recruiter. I'm all grown up, man. I said, I know what today is. Is My wife and I are, uh, you know, going out Christmas shopping and things like that today. And, and uh. so anyway, they made an appointment for me a week or two later. I don't remember. Uh, I know I went over and lit a candle or something like that. They gave me some advice that I should light some candles or something. I did that. And, folks, I was as lost, and we moved, and God was good to us during our military career. I, I kept on getting promotions. God was opening doors for us. But I kept on feeling like we were lost. So we end up, fast forward ahead a few years, we end up in Arkansas. Now, everybody should live in Arkansas for about five minutes and get out of there. I'm just being honest with you. But anyway, there's great people in Arkansas. We just didn't meet a lot of them, praise God. But anyhow, uh, Debbie and I went out for a ride. We had a hot red 300ZX Turbo back in the day. T-tops. I had the T-tops off, stored in the back, 325 horsepower. No one had that kind of horsepower back then. I'd burn out from every stop sign. I mean, we're just having a life, you know. We get lost out there, and there was no GPSs. There was no maps. You know, you had an atlas, but you didn't know what road I was on. So I went to this gas station, and I said, and and there's a guy talking in there about his dog dying, and this went on for a long time. He said, man, I love Bo. I can't believe he stuck his head out right at the same time I was going by a traffic sign. And I'm standing there listening to this, and it was, just, it was killing him. You know, he's like, and I don't know if I'm ever going to recover from losing Bo. Just about decapitated him. <laughs> and I don't know what to do. I'm standing there just wanting directions back to Little Rock. And uh, finally, it was my turn. I got up there. I said, excuse me, sir. I said, can you tell me how to get back to Little Rock? He said, shut up, Yankee, and get out of here. Take your pretty little car and your pretty little wife and get out of here. You know what I did? I got in my car and left, praise God, but uh, I think we drove to Memphis by way of Little Rock or something. I but we went to a couple churches. I went to this one church, so Debbie's best friend and my best friend, husband and wife, had a bunch of kids. and My dad actually came up to visit us with his wife and just a ton of people there in Arkansas. We were living in Jacksonville, just north of uh, Little Rock at that time. And, and Debbie's friend, Barbie, talked my father and I into going to church with her that day. And so we went with Barbie, my father and I. Nobody else. I guess Debbie stayed home with the kids and, and with my father's fiance and with uh, Mr. Ponzolon, and they were getting the food ready. So we go to a church. Now we go to a church. You had to know something was going on here at the church. There were seven sets of drums up in the front of that church. Praise God! And then the opening hymn was "Stairway to Heaven" by Led Zeppelin. I mean, people are dancing around and moving. I, you've never seen anything. It was like being at a concert. I'm like, this is a free concert. You know, man, I could come here all the time. But then this weird thing happened. If you heard me in Sunday school, there's always people dropping in front of me and stuff. This guy in front of me slams off the floor. So, and I mean, they're playing the third time through stairway to heaven and I'm screaming, this guy's down, you know, medic. So I jump over the pew and this guy's like, and, I mean, is he breathing? You know, I'm checking his pulses all over the place. And so, I mean, I'm slapping him in the head. I'm clearing his earway. I'm pounding on his chest, bouncing him off the floor. Come to find out the guy was slain in the spirit or something. It was terrible. He woke up crying. He's like, oh, why are you hurting me? <laughs> they should have a warning when you walk into that church. There should be something there. Now, that morning, I, my father, so my father, I was so proud of him. He had quit smoking. And he came in, in, in to see us. And, and so he hadn't smoked in months. And I said, Dad, I'm so proud of you. We are trying to have a relationship with him. I couldn't find him after we had the broken rib fiasco on the guy who fell on the floor. I couldn't find my dad anywhere. Anyway, they kicked out Barbie and me. We had to go find my dad. And I found him on the steps of the church smoking a cigarette. He had walked over to 7-Eleven, man. And he was lit up, man. Had his new Bic lighter and a pack of cigarettes. And he's like, son, I don't know God. But that wasn't God in there. <laughs> that man falling down. He said, "They should warn you about that." I said, "I know." And uh, so, anyway, still a fine guy. went to another church. Anyway, make a long story short. Years go by. It's 1993, and I get orders to go to the United States Army Sergeants Major Academy. I get there with 466 other people. It's just overwhelming. Everybody who goes there is going to get promoted to sergeant major if you make it. There are people, some are failing out. Lots of things are going on. We're training for the Olympics, it seemed like, every morning, doing PT like you could not believe, doing class, staying up all night, doing papers. It was just continuous. It was always on you, and there was one guy. We had a base group of 17. They had these base groups they broke into. We had 17 in our small group. And there was one guy in my small group that was different than everybody else. There was one guy named Willie Vernon Watson. If you remember uh, Flip Wilson, if you're old enough to remember Flip Wilson, he looked just like Flip Wilson. This guy smiled so wide, I'm telling you, he had extra teeth in his mouth. And uh, and you could fit a banana in that guy's face sideways. I mean, he was just... He had this big, beautiful smile, everybody's hating each other, wanting to beat each other up. Uh, wanting to... There was a fist fight that ensued in class one morning, and they made me the class leader, so I'd have to get up and jump in between these people. And one day this fist fight goes on, I broke them up, I got everybody sit- seated down, <laughs> seated before the leadership came in. And when I got them seated, I looked over at Willie and he was just sitting there smirking like always, just smiling, enjoying life. And I said, Willie, I said, would you tell the group why everything is so good for you? I thought he was gonna say he had some kind of mental disorder <laughs> or something. This is what he said. I'll never forget. It It was real with him. He said, Doug, if I was to die right now, I'd know for sure I'm going to heaven. He says, how can you be sad when Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? He says, I don't have sad days. And I remember everybody, my Jesus freak monitor went on, you know, and there was like two other people in the class that were saved. They were like, praise God, you know, <laughs> they, they were encouraged by him. And the rest of us were freaking out, you know. Well, anyway, I went home and told Debbie that day. It was October 14th, 1993. Coming up on 30 years, where does the time go? But I went home to Debbie, and I said, Debbie, you're not going to believe it. Willie told me if he dies, he's going to know for sure he's going to heaven. And I set off my Jesus freak monitor, and Debbie said, yeah, you better be careful. You know, God only knows what these people are thinking. Next day's a PT test, physical training. So in the Army, you have to run two miles. First thing you do is two minutes worth of push-ups. You had to do as many push-ups as you can in two minutes without stopping. You're allowed to rest in an up position, but you can't stop. You can't rest. And, uh, and that day I was really good at pushups when I was in, I used to be really strong and, uh, I, you know, so if you were going to go over a hundred pushups in two minutes, I'd have to tell people, Hey, I'm going for the record because it'd be post records. And uh, I think I did 104 pushups in two minutes that day. And I mean, I was feeling really good. You know, you get pumped up now. A guy beat me by like 30 pushups. so don't feel too good about me. Some guy wailed me, man. But anyway, I felt good about breaking hundred. And then uh, you get back in line, you got a 10 minute break between them between the sit-ups and the push-ups, so I did the push-ups, next up were sit-ups, so I got back in line, and when I got back in line, this guy came running over to me, and he says, you know Willie, right, I said, yeah, Willie's my ranger buddy, he's my battle buddy, he's my best friend, uh, he's in my class, I'm his class leader, what's up, and they said, there's something wrong, he failed his push-ups, now folks, it's impossible to fail your push-ups in the United States Army when you get to a school like that, because you've been tested a dozen times before you even get there, they're checking your, your weight, your muscle, all that stuff, And uh, I remember saying, I'll look out for him. So I did my sit-ups, and I remember I grabbed Willie, and we were walking over to start the PT test, and it was literally a half mile away. And as we were walking, which was good, it warmed us up a little. We were going to a track in the desert. Uh, They had a two-mile thing, and some of it was on tar, and uh, on the tar road finishing there. And as I walked over there, I said, listen, Willie. I said, I'll tell them you failed your push-ups because they graded you unfairly. That's my shame. Willie said something to me that I'll never forget, Willie said, "Christians don't lie." He said, "There's something wrong with me, Doug. It'll be all right." We ran the PT test, and I came in a few minutes before Willie, and and uh, I got him a glass of water. I had some water. Walking back to the gym, and I had hit 300 points. I had at least 100 points in every area of my PT test. You get to wear a patch on your uniform. It was a pretty cool thing to say you were a master. You you had mastered your test, maxed your test. And uh, so I was joking with Willie. We had a bunch of special forces guys that were in our base group. And I said, I'm going to go find these snake eaters because that's kind of a nickname for special forces guys. And I'm going to say, listen, i got the same patch you got. And as I was talking to Willie, Willie passed out. And he, he tripped or something. He slammed off the ground. And when he did, his body came up just a little bit and he went back down. And I remember I kicked him and I said, Willie, get up. And he didn't move. So I rolled him over real quickly and when I did, he had a cut on his lip going across the bottom of his lip and he had sand on his eyeballs. I immediately took his pulse, I felt a really faint pulse. I really had to dig in to get his pulse. Had no pulse on his extremities and so I screamed medic as loud as I could and then I immediately cleared his ear passage. I made sure I cocked his head back and dug out his throat to see if anything was in there then I went into giving him mouth to mouth and CPR. Back then CPR included a breath of life, compressions, a breath of life, compressions. And I started doing that, and every time I'd give Willie a breath of life, his blood would pump out of his lip and down my throat. And no matter what I did, another guy ran up, a friend of mine said, I'm a nurse, I'll take care of the compressions and the counting. And I didn't even think about this, but he said, you have blood all over you, man, so you might as well keep on doing what you're doing. There's no chance if he's got something wrong with him that you don't have it. So just keep, I said, wow, thanks for that, brother. Uh, Anyway, I was holding his nose, and folks, I tried so hard. And within a couple minutes, the medic showed up, and they tubed him, and they were bagging him, and the nurses were working on him, and they pushed me away. And uh, I remember the doctor showed up in an ambulance probably 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes later, and they pronounced him dead and put him on the ambulance. I remember the ambulance driving away, and I was standing out there, and I must have been quite a sight, having blood all over my body and, and all those types of things. And uh, I remember the only guy I had ever met my entire life, now, folks, I was 32 years old. 32 years old, and I had never met a person my entire life who told me they knew Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, not once. I had never met a person like that. And uh, I remember that uh, I was standing out there, and I had a half-mile walk back over to the gym, and a friend of mine pulled up in his car, and he said, I'll give you a ride, Doug. And I hopped in his car, and he took his T-shirt off and said, we're about the same size. Put this T-shirt on. You look terrible. The MPs are going to be looking for your CID. I can drive home and get another shirt. And I handed him my shirt, and I said, you need to get rid of this shirt. You need to burn it, whatever it is. He said, nobody will ever lay eyes on that shirt. And I said, thank you. And I I remember he drove me over to the gym, and, and when he stopped at the gym, first person in my life to pray for me. I mean, out loud like that, he put his arm on my shoulder, and he prayed. He said, dear God, use Willie's death for your glory. And God, if Doug's not saved, would you save him today? God, would you do a work in Doug's life? and uh, let him know that this is all going to be all right. Help, Doug. And uh, I remember standing there, they dropped me off at the gym, and people were waiting for me there at the gym. People were literally lined up and waiting for me. So I went in, and as soon as I walked in the door, I picked up the phone, and I called Debbie. And I said, Debbie, someone died in our class today. It wasn't me. Love you. Click. I mean, we ha- you have those phone calls when you're in the Army. You just got to get it done quick so the next guy can do it. And uh, I remember as soon as I did that, I turned around, and they started scrubbing me with alcohol to get the blood off my face. I can still smell the alcohol. I can still taste it on my lips. I can remember there were two ladies that I was in the Sergeant Major's Academy with, and they were scrubbing me. And uh, finally I went in a locker room, and everything was so bizarre. You know, everything's different. I remember I walked into the locker room, and they cleared everybody out. There was a Navy SEAL in there who cleared everybody out, and him and another guy helped me shower like I needed help to shower. But I kind of did. I was just out of it. And I got my uniform on, and, and I walked over, and sure enough, the CID was waiting for me, and the MPs, and to make a long story short, we went and identified the body, the commander and I. We came back, and there was a memorial service that quick. The Army does things that quick. And this chaplain got up there and spoke about how sand wears out gravestones. How when sand hits gravestones, it can wear out names and stuff, and what a shame that is. Never talked about Christ, never talked about knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Never talked about what God could offer us in the way of comfort. Never talked anything about consolation to help me in the service ended. And right as it ended, we stood up there and we had his boots and we had a rifle there with a helmet on it. And, and uh, uh, we, we had his helmet on top of there and, 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 and we had some of his gear wrapped around there with his name tag and stuff. And whatever he stored there at the uh, Sergeant Majors Academy area, which was all his field gear, we put out there put an extra pair of boots out. We had his uniform laying out there, and people came and, and offered their condolences to our base group. And I remember I was, just, I was just so out of it, kind of crying, kind of weirded out. And there was a couple guys in my class holding me up. And as soon as that ended, uh, the, my leader walked up to me. My class leader, uh, Command Sergeant Major in the Army, walked up to me and said, Doug, i got a chaplain here you need to talk to. And I said, I don't want to talk to him. He's a knucklehead. He spoke about gravestones wearing out. He said, no, not that one. He said, This guy knows God. And I think he can really help you, Doug. Can you give him 20? Well, he's my leader. He can tell me whatever he wants me to do. So I stayed in the auditorium and everybody left. And I'll never forget what this chaplain said to me. I was sitting there in the auditorium, just like Pastor in here. I was sitting next to each other. Huge auditorium, set a thousand people anyway. And uh, I remember him and I were sitting there. And he looked at me and he said, Doug, my name's Chaplain Kennedy. And uh, he said, I wanted to talk to you today, see if there's anything I can do to help. He said, do you have any questions for me? And I said, yeah. I said, chaplain, you can tell me why Willie died and none of us. Willie was the only guy in class that wasn't openly uh, going crazy on each other. He's the only guy in class who said he knew Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. He's the nicest guy in class. And he said, I can't answer that for you. But he said, maybe God can someday. But he said, let me ask you a question. He said, Doug if you were to die, would you know for sure you're going to heaven? And I said, no, I wouldn't know for sure. And I said, I don't think anybody can. And those verses we started with over here in 1 John 5:13, these things have I written unto you whew, that you may know you have eternal life. I got to know. No one had ever shared that with me before. And I remember I was, listening, I was hopping on every word. He gave me a Bible. And he was writing things down and he was rabbit-earing places in the Bible and circling things. And I can remember he said, the first thing you need to know, Doug, to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, the most important thing you need to know is you're a sinner. The Bible says we're sinners. It says we all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says there are none righteous, no, not one. Can I tell you something, friends? Even if we're saved, we're still sinners, and we have to deal with that sin. Thank God once we accept Jesus Christ, we don't deal with it in such a way where we're thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. But we're sinners. So the first thing you need to know is you're a sinner, Doug. Boy, you told me that, and I agreed. I said, I am. And he said, Doug, there's a price on sin. He says, you know why Willie died today? I said, no, sir, I don't. He said, Willie died because there's a price on sin. The Bible says for the wages of sin is death. He said, Willie died because sin is in this world. He said, Doug, we're always going to see people dying. As long as there's sin in the world, people will be dying. As long as people are dying, there's sin in the world. And he said, we need a Savior. He said, first thing you need to know is you're a sinner. Second thing you need to know is there's a price on sin. And folks, this was the most clear thing I had ever heard before. Nobody had ever looked at things or told me about things like this. And then he got to the point that Jesus paid that price. I don't know about you, but Romans 5, 8 still changes my life a little bit. But God commendeth his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, can I tell you something? Before any of us were born, before any of you were born, before I was born, Christ died for our sins. He told me, he said, Doug, you're a sinner. There's a price on sin, which is death. And Jesus paid that price. And then he said, but Doug, you can know those three things and still go to hell. I, I'm here to submit to you that I thought I knew those three things. I at least knew two and a half. I thought I knew that. I thought I knew I was a sinner. Man, I had done all kinds of things in tradition and ritual. I'd been sprinkled, baptized. I had made first communions. I had made pledges. I had said creeds. I had done all kinds of things. But I never did anything with the information. He said, Doug, you're a sinner. There's a price on sin. Jesus paid that price. And then he opened his Bible or my Bible, to Romans 10, 9 and 10. And he said, there's something you need to do never forget that. I opened my Bible that day and looked at it with him, and it said that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Imagine that, just asking Christ to save you, praying to him. That if thou shalt shalt confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I had to stop him for a minute. I said, Pastor uh, Chaplain, I said, I need your help. It doesn't say anything in there about works. It doesn't say anything about being good to people. It doesn't say anything about anything. He said, Doug, it's not about that. He said, our salvation's a free gift from God. He said, we work because God took care of us. He said, we don't have to work our way into heaven. There's no work involved in being saved, Doug. He said, so you must speak it with your mouth and believe it with your heart. Then he read that second verse, 10, 10. For with the heart, man, believeth unto righteousness our heart when it's real. When we pray to him and it's real in a heart. I mean, God changes. He, you know, he saves us right where we are, but he doesn't leave us there, folks. I don't know about you, but I am so glad that God didn't leave me there. And uh, and that day, I remember He said, "So speaking it with your mouth, that's praying." And He says, "Asking God and trusting in Christ alone to take your sins." He said, "Doug, are you ready to do that?" I said, "I'm so ready to do that." And I bent over that moment. I remember I had that Bible in my hand, and I, I remember I was just kind of crying, kind of praying, and I could feel this chaplain's tears hitting the back of my head as he thanked God that I accepted Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I'm here to tell you, a lot changed that day and not a lot changed that day. Anything that was unclean left me. The Holy Spirit of God started indwelling within me. And boy, I still had a lot of things I had to work out with my salvation and had to work out with God. I remember one of the things I did is I went home to Debbie. So finally I get out of there. They've got all the blood off me. And we had three different washings of blood on my face before they let me leave. I remember peroxide and scrubbing my tongue in the bathroom to get blood off. Some of the craziest things you could ever imagine uh, I was doing. They, someone, uh, someone of the sergeant majors got me some peroxide. She had been a nurse or something, and she was scrubbing down my tongue with me. We were brushing it, getting all the blood off so I wouldn't go home and freak Debbie out. And uh, I remember that day I got in my car in that chapel, and after he led me to Lord, he gave me a business card It said, Bob Stewart, Pastor Bob Stewart, Hillcrest Baptist Church, El Paso, Texas. He said, this is your pastor. I said, wow, I get a pastor and everything? He said, you do. I said, that's pretty cool. So I went home that day. I remember I drove home, and Debbie was there. And De- poor Debbie was pregnant. And, and Debbie just doesn't get pregnant. She's small. I mean, phew, straight out, man. I, feel, I used to feel bad for her. I mean, pray, I, that poor girl, when she got pregnant, it was terrible. I mean, that was just, I'd feel bad. I'd roll over at night, and just, oh, my. Thank God he, <laughs> you know, he got her through those pregnancies. But anyway, I remember this. I remember I got home, and something came over me where I said, honey, I need to call our pastor. And I called Pastor Bob Stewart right off that business card and I said, Pastor, I said, this is Doug Kerriger. You need to get over to my house because I'm married to a reprobate. That's what I said. And he said, who is this? I said, this is Doug Kerriger." He said, remind me, how do I know you? I said, I was at the Sartre Majors Academy. He goes, oh. He says, you were the one with the guy that Chaplain Kennedy led to the Lord. He said, oh dear brother, give me your address. He said, but a couple things. He said, when did you learn the word reprobate? I said, I have no idea. I think it's the first time I ever said it. And. He said, well, we're not going to say that anymore, and uh, that's a word we're going to take out of our vocabulary. We're going to love your wife. He said, what's your dear wife's name? I said, Debbie. He said, well, let's pray for her. Right there on the phone, he prayed to me. He said, I'm coming over. Sure enough, 15 minutes later, he's at the door. I opened the door, and by then, it's 100-something degrees already. He said, "Oh, it's dry heat. Heat's heat. It's stunk. Anyway, I opened the door. I'm like, get in. Don't let the air conditioning out, swamp cooler stuff, whatever it is. Don't let it out. He's like, no, I need to look at your truck, and I had an old beat-up Chevy out there. But anyway, we went out and looked at my truck, and we prayed for Debbie, and he said, we're going to love Debbie. He says, I promise you this. He said, we serve the God of all heaven right now. He said, we serve the God of all creation. He said, we serve the God who created Debbie. And he said, if anybody can save Debbie, it's that God. But we're not going to call her names. He said, boy, are we going to love Debbie? He says, we're going to love her so much. He says, my family's committed to praying for her every single day. And he said, we're going to go in. He said, I'm going to talk to her. I don't know if she's going to get saved. It's not real good that you called her a reprobate a little while ago, but we'll see. I remember we went in the house, and he was so kind. He gave Debbie his testimony and told Debbie how he had planted a church. Started having a friendship, because Debbie was kind of guarded at this point. Your husband comes home and says, I'm saved, you're not. It was freaking her out. And uh, anyway, over the next hour or so, he had a great conversation. He shared the gospel with Debbie, and she wasn't ready. And he left, and he told Debbie, here's my card, here's my wife's card, Our phones are on 24 hours a day. I'm your pastor. You can call. Try it at 3 in the morning tonight. I'll answer it. That's what he said. He said, you can come to church anytime. No one's going to pick on you. No one's going to point you out. No one's going to grab you. I'll never forget that. He was so kind to us. Debbie started coming to church with us. Then we moved. We got up to Little Rock. We had another pastor. And this pastor's like, my wife's dying of cancer. But I'll come at any time. You call me in the middle of the night. And then we got that call. In July of 1994, Debbie's father had passed away. And I remember I said, Debbie, you want me to call the priest? She said, no, call our pastor. And that night, in the middle of the night, as morning as the sun came up, this guy left his wife's hospital bed where she died three days later. Drove over to her house. We said, stay, you can send over the assistant. He's like, no, my wife knows where she's going and she wants me so bad to be over there with Debbie. Debbie prayed to receive Christ. Folks, can I tell you something? Our lives have never been the same. Uh, I'm not sure why God chose to let us hear a clear presentation of the gospel like you're hearing today back then. I don't know why God loved us that much, but he does. But you know, one thing that worries me over in the book of Genesis, it, it does tell us that sooner or later he shuts that off. We're not always gonna be hearing the gospel. We're not always gonna be having another chance to get saved. So if you're here this morning, If you're here this morning, we're going to go into all kinds of stuff this week, have fun sermons, relevant sermons about PTSD. Number one thing you'll ever do in your life is accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Can I tell you something this morning, folks? If I was to die right now, I'd be in the presence of my Lord.